Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be together on the Lord's Day to hear God's Word and to encourage one another. Um, uh, I've been uh, asked to be short and quick because of the cold for the sake of those who are outside. I'll try to honor that request, but if you're sitting outside and you hear me getting carried away, just cough loudly, and uh, I'll try to honor that request. We'll try to shorten the message this morning because it's cold. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We are picking up where we left off last week in the book of Acts. Uh, We're picking it up from verse 4 this morning. Our attention will end on verse 11. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's Word. Back when circuses were a big thing of entertainment in the Western world, one of the best attractions at the circus was the lions and the lion tamers. Uh, The lion tamer would enter into a circle. So here's the people who have come into the circus and then the, the lion tamer would enter into a circle, into a ring with the lion with nothing else on his hands except a whip and a chair, a four-legged stool chair. The classic image of a lion tamer is one of this entertainer holding this image. So if you, if, even if you look this up on the internet, you'll find the classic image is that he's standing there with a whip and this four-legged chair. Most people pay attention to the whip because he uses it for show uh, to make the lion do dances and he whips the lion with it. But in reality, it's just for show. It is the chair that does the important work. 
How is it that a man can enter into a ring with a lion and make a lion do all kinds of tricks and dances and the lion does not attack him? How does that happen? Well, the answer is found in the four-legged kitchen chair. When a lion tamer holds the chair in front of the lion's face, the lion tries to focus on all four of the legs at the same time. When his focus is divided, the lion becomes confused, distracted, and is unsure what to do next. When faced with so many options, the lion chooses to freeze and wait instead of attacking the man in front of him who's holding the chair. This majestic, powerful beast is tamed by a rather simple distraction. This year is a tale about the power of distraction. If one is distracted from their task by a number of many things, they will likely leave a core work undone. Like an old proverb says, if you chase two rabbits, both of them will escape. The, te- the text in front of us this morning shows us a, a, an important part in the life of the disciples, in the life of this new church as it's dawning. Uh, the Lord Jesus gives the disciples a command and He gives them a clear mission, but there are distractions that are trying to grab at them to distract them away from the mission. We'll see two of them this morning, and you'll see as we go through Acts that there are a number of many other distractions that seek to distract the disciples away from the mission. The text in front of us is going to help us to see these. Both the Lord Jesus and the angels point out this distraction and they try to correct the disciples. And in seeing these distractions, we will try this morning to examine ourselves to see where our distractions are and we will attempt by God's grace to refocus ourselves on the mission that we ought to focus ourselves on. Let us recap uh, what has happened thus far. Uh, the Lord Jesus uh, was with the disciples for three and a half years. He was teaching them about the kingdom. And then the Lord Jesus at the end, He had been predicting a number of times, three times clearly recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, that He's going to die. And then indeed He does die. And the disciples lose their mind. They scatter. They're afraid. Because the champion of their salvation and the king that they thought was going to leave, leave them is actually now dead. But then he rises again on the third day. The interesting thing, the other gospel writers, Mark, Matthew and John, focus and make a big deal about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has indeed, re- has indeed resurrected. Uh, except perhaps Mark. Mark doesn't make, talk too much about that. He just, he just leaves you hanging. But Luke's uh, focus in Luke chapter 24 is not so much that Jesus has risen again, he's, but he presents it in Luke chapter 24 as a bygone fact that Jesus was supposed to rise again. And the focus of Luke chapter 24 is to rebuke the disciples because they did not believe that he had to die and was going to rise again. If you read Luke chapter 4, I would encourage you to read it in your time. The focus of the three narratives that you see put together in Luke 24 is to rebuke the disciples for their sadness at the death of Christ and them expecting Him to stay dead. 
You see that with the angels when they arrive at the tomb. At the beginning of Luke chapter 24, they arrive at the tomb to see Jesus. And the angels, two angels, say to them, Why on earth are you looking for someone who's alive among the dead? And then you remember the road to Emmaus as the as Lord Jesus is walking. And then he finds two of his disciples walking, sad, talking among themselves. And the Lord Jesus says, You fools! Why, did, why are you so slow to believe all that the prophets have said? It was suppo- I was supposed to die and you should have expected me to rise again because I told you and the scriptures themselves have told you. And now, and all of this is to show that everything, the Lord Jesus has come to fulfill everything that the scriptures have said. And that brings us now to now, after he is risen again, Luke tells us here in verse 3 that for 40 days he's showing up to the disciples, telling, showing up and teaching them about the kingdom of God. I want to mention something here before we get into our text, because there's a lot of uh, speculation and confusion about what was it about the kingdom of God that Jesus was talking about during these 40 days. You see there in Luke, in Luke, in Luke in Acts sorry, chapter 1 verse 3, that Luke just says that he was telling them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. He doesn't add any new extra information. Which means that Luke is expecting us to understand that he's teaching them the same things that he was teaching them while he was alive. Throughout the gospel of Luke, the Lord Jesus is saying, here's what it is about the kingdom of heaven. Here's what it is about the kingdom of God. He's not giving them some new, extra, different information. It is all tied together. He is continuing his ministry of fortifying them, strengthening them for 40 days because he is about to leave. He's not trying to tell them what's going to happen now. or He's not trying to uh, create any, any extra confusion. But it is rather just that. That he's teaching them the same things, reiterating the same things that he has taught. Which all of this now, he spent 40 days with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God. All of this now brings us to verse 4. While staying with them, he, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Here in verse 4, we see the disciples given a command that is different from anything that they were given before. And that command is this, that they are to wait here in Jerusalem for the, for the promise of the Father. Uh, so now it's becoming clear. Before, they were told that they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. John had told them they will receive the Holy Spirit. The Father, through the texts of the Old Testament, had told them, They were going to receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself had told them, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And now he's saying, here's how it's going to happen. You now need to wait in Jerusalem for this particular gift to arrive. And from there, you will take up your mission. There are two things worth noting with regard to this command. First, first thing worth noting here is that they ought to wait specifically in Jerusalem. It might be lost to us, to you and me today, that the disciples were not from Jerusalem. They were Galileans. Jerusalem is not their primary residence. In fact, there were oddballs in Jerusalem. They stood out. They stuck out because Galileans were not as refined as the people of Jerusalem. 
For example, you remember when Peter was hiding himself, when Jesus, with the trial of Jesus Christ was continuing on, and Peter's busy lurking around trying to hear but not associate himself with the Lord Jesus. He was trying to hide and he was trying to warm himself up. And as he was speaking with, with people there uh, that were around the fire, Matthew tells us in Matthew 26 verse 73 that they were able to recognize him and call him out as one of Jesus' followers because his accent stood out. They said, your, your accent gives you away. Uh, this is not home for him. This, this place, Jerusalem, is not where they normally live. This is not a comfortable place for them. Their lives were back home in Galilee. They had no reason to stay in Jerusalem. Hence why he, Lord Jesus has to emphasize this. They, they had no reason to stay here. They were likely to just think, okay, well, Jesus is gone. Let's go back to our lives. In fact, in John, when John records uh, one of the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ during this 40 days, he records the disciples fishing. Which, if you know the disciples, you know that that's, what, they're, that, that's where the, what their jobs were. They were fishermen, a lot of them. So here's, the, here's these fishermen now going back to their old lives of fishing. And Jesus here is in effect here telling them to not, to not go back to their old lives, not go back to Galilee, but rather to stay in Jerusalem and to receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, those who were tax collectors were not to go back to tax collecting. Those who were doing other jobs were not to go do whatever it is. Because now that Jesus Christ is resurrected, they are to be commissioned forward. Remember also that Jerusalem had just killed their master. Okay, this is not a place where it is a good place for them to be. Many people in Jerusalem are still suspicious of them. And certainly after the resurrection of Christ, you'll remember that the Pharisees had bribed the guards to say that Jesus did not rise again. But you remember what the Pharisees told the guards to say? They told the guards to, te to tell people that Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples at night. So Jesus is telling the disciples to stay in this place when there's all these kinds of rumors going on about them, where there's this discomfort, and He is locking them in in this uncomfortable place, telling them to not go back to their old lives. In all of this, he, the Lord Jesus tells them they have to obey Him, they have to trust God. Circumstances here in this place in Jerusalem are certainly against them, but they must stay and obey. Yeah, don't miss the strength of the word used here in verse 4. You might miss it. He ordered them. I don't know if you saw that. He ordered them. He charged them. This is one of the strongest terms of command in the Greek language. It's a, it's a military term. A strong term of directing. I'm ordering you. This is not a request. This is, a, this is an order. I'm ordering you. Stay here in Jerusalem regardless of these circumstances that might make it easier for you to just go back to where you come from. Let me say this to us as an aside. Allow me on this rabbit trail, if you will. Christ's commands to us as His people are to be taken extremely seriously. You with me? Christ's commands to us as His people are to be taken extremely seriously. We are, we are those who do not want to use the excuse of circumstance to not be obedient. We, however inconvenient, we are those who say, What has my Lord said? 
That is what I am to do. However scary the command might be, we are those who are called to obey what the Lord has ordered us to do. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to Him and He becomes both our Lord and Savior. What it means that He is our Lord is less about the commands themselves and it is more about our esteem and trust of Him. See, there is a a beautiful thing, a majestic thing happening when a person is able to set aside their comfort, set aside their fear, set aside their reluctance in order to pursue that path that Christ has commanded them on. It communicates to the watching world and to the heavenly beings that Christ is worth living for. So let me encourage you in your daily obedience to stay the course. Let me encourage you however hard it is in your daily obedience as you make daily decisions about how you are to live in light of Christ's commands. Let me encourage you stay the course. You are commanded by Christ to stay the course and it is a beautiful thing. There is something waiting for you at the end and that is the the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well done, my good and faithful servant. This means for you, dear student, as you are working through your studies and, pre- and, and opportunities are presented to you to cut corners, don't do it. This is means to you, dear single person, as you, you, you have, you're in a season right now with a lot of temptation about you to try and get you to, to get what you want, perhaps companionship in an evil way. I'm encouraging you, don't do it. This means to you, businessman, as you're running your business, trying to make ends meet, but it just seems to be hard right now with everything that's going on. It's very hard. There's, there's all kinds, there's corruption all over the place. It's hard for you to get ahead without perhaps doing something with a brown paper bag for someone. Let me encourage you, don't do it. It may seem to be the easier out to not obey the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's only death and destruction at the end of it. True life is found in staying the course that the Lord Jesus Christ says, following Him regardless of circumstance. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our unrelenting obedience. Well, come back with me now to the text. Second, here where we see, that's the first thing, that they are, they are, to, they are to wait in Jerusalem regardless of the circumstances that are there. But second, they are not to wait in vain because they are to wait for the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you noticed this in the text, but the Lord Jesus is very verbose in how He tells them what they are to wait for. He doesn't just say, Hey guys, stay in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit is is coming. But instead, He gives them a whole bunch of information right here in just these two verses to encourage them to stay in Jerusalem. He told them that they are to wait for the promise as the Father has said through Him. He, he then brings in John the Baptist saying that John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And He tells them that it won't happen too long from now. It's just a few days away. You might wonder to yourself, why all this information? Why is He being so verbose? Well, the answer here is that the Lord Jesus is fortifying them giving them many testimonies from the Father, from Himself, from John the Baptist, so that they would believe that this is to happen. 
Jesus wants them to be assured that this gift will arrive. They're not going to go to Jerusalem and be in this uncomfortable situation for a long time without end. They're going to be there and the Holy Spirit is going to come just as John, the Father, and the Son have said. The disciples were to obey the Lord's command to stay in Jerusalem because His promise is sure that they will indeed have the Holy Spirit. Now, now to you, to you and I, perhaps it does not mean much, but to the disciples, the promise of the Holy Spirit will come upon them was a clear sign of their commissioning to do God's work. A clear sign of their commissioning to do God's work. Jesus was here saying to them, do not go back to your old lives because I want you to do the work of God that God will equip you for. Okay. Now, where do I get all of that? Well, in the Hebrew mind, the Holy Spirit coming upon someone meant that that person has a task to do that the Holy Spirit will enable him to do. For example, in Exodus 31, Bezalel, the son of Uri, has the Holy Spirit come upon him for the purpose of craftsmanship and skill so that he can make all the items of worship that were required in the tabernacle of Moses. In Judges, in fact, in Judges chapter 3, verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel and he judges Israel and wins all of her wars. In fact, in Judges 6, 11, 13, and 14, all the significant judges in the book of Judges, we are told in all of those chapters, chapter 6, 11, 13, and 14, that the Spirit of God came upon them and enabled them to do the task that they were to do. In 1 Samuel, both Saul and David have the Spirit of the Lord come upon them as they are anointed as kings. And of course, you will remember... Even the Lord Jesus Christ, before He began His ministry, the Spirit of the Lord descended upon Him like a dove. So what is clear here is that them receiving the Spirit of God means that they have a task to perform. This is a commissioning. Just like Jesus Himself was commissioned, so now He commissions them. And so... That's, that's all there is about that. They have to wait in Jerusalem to wait because the Lord is commissioning for them for a work and the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them to enable them to do that work. So then they gather together in verse 6. And in verse 6, they, when they gather together with the Lord, they get distracted. Look at verse 6. We are going to see the first distraction from the task. Verse 6. So when they had come together... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In front of the disciples, just take your mind to be with these disciples, where the disciples were at the moment. In front of the disciples is a resurrected Jesus Christ. They look, they look at him and they see, they've touched him, they've seen him eating. He is alive. And then they look around them and Israel, the nation of the people of God, is still under Roman rule. And here is Jesus, whom the Roman system has thrown at him, the worst thing that they can do to someone. 
which is crucifixion. That's, what, that's the worst thing that they could do to someone. The worst thing they could do to you is kill you. And they've just done it to Jesus. But here He is standing. Here He is among them, walking, eating, standing. He's risen up. It's clear He died. They know this. He died. But here He is, walking among them, alive. They see this as an opportunity. This is, this is clearly an opportune moment for us. This, this must mean something profound. If there's someone here whom death has no power over, this means that us now as Israel can have a king who will live forever and we can take over the whole world right now. So let's go, Jesus. Let's do this. They're asking him, will you now return the kingdom to Israel? Don't miss the essence of the question. The the essence of the question is this. Is this the time when you now rule the whole world from the throne of Jerusalem? Is this now the end? The end of all things as we know them? Is this now, is this the time now when all of the pain of God's people goes away? Is this the time now when you judge all of your enemies? Is this the time now where we all, like you, live forever? Many people have attacked the disciples for this question. But I do not believe excessive castigation of the disciples for this question is necessary. Certainly the question is unnecessary because Jesus rebukes it. But it is not rebellious. It is rather human. We have someone here in front of us who has died and risen again. It makes sense for us to wonder whether thou this means this is the beginning of the last stage of God's plan. What they're doing here is trying to interpret the signs of the times. This has happened. Someone's alive who was dead, which means now such a thing then must follow. It means that we're all going to now live forever. They are trying to read what is happening and they are trying to find out if the end of the world is at hand. And Jesus answers them with an answer for all time. An answer that is, should be near and dear to us as well. Jesus answers them, he says this, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The question about the specific time in verse 6 is answered with respect to all time here in verse 7. He doesn't just say, it's not for you to know this now, this particular, the answer to your question now. He says, in general, it has nothing to do to you, with you, the times and seasons in general that the Father has fixed by His own authority. The Lord Jesus here opposes their inquisitiveness. Let me try that word again. He opposes their inquisitiveness about something that does not concern them. They are distracted by seeking knowledge that is not for them to know. And that knowledge is about the times and seasons that the Father has fixed. Let me me say this to us. Two things that the New Testament makes clear when it comes to the end times. There are two things. Just always keep this in your head. The what of the end times is revealed to God's people. But the when is the Father's knowledge alone. 
The what of the end times is revealed to us for our comfort and for our exhortation. But the when is, is, is only knowledge for the Father alone. The what of the end times was spoken of by the Lord Jesus Christ while He was with the disciples. He told them about the, 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 the destruction of the temple. He told them about the times of the Gentiles which we're living in now. He told them that the Son of Man will come on the clouds. And He told them about the final judgment seat where Christ will judge those who are His and separate them from those who are not His. He had told them that all of these things are going to happen and He exhorts them to go forward because of the reality of those things that will happen in the future. But He had also told them very clearly that as to the hour or day, no one knows except the Father. As to the time, the actual time when those things start to happen, or those things happen, it's nothing to do with us. It's that, it's the, that is the prerogative of the Father. Inquisitiveness, then, about things that do not concern us is a waste of time. Have you ever heard of the old saying, procrastination is a thief of time? Inquisitiveness about knowledge that the Father reserves for Himself is also a thief of time. This assessment that Jesus gives them here is a lesson for all of us and is worth considering. Consider first that not all Bible study is healthy Bible study if you're studying the Bible to find out things that you're not meant to. You see, this, this looks good. If you, if, if you just look at this, this scene with me for a second, it looks good, doesn't it? Who, who have they been coming to to ask their biblical questions in the past? Jesus. So now they have another question, so they're coming to Jesus. They're not, they're not speculating amongst themselves. We should commend them. They're not grumbling among themselves, wondering, hey, is this now the time? Hey, what do you... No, they go to the source of information that they trust. They go and ask Jesus. But Jesus rebukes them. He says, it is, it is, this is not something that concerns you, so stop asking about it. Stop trying to find out about it. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. It is the same for us. It's the same for us, dear saints. We must go to God for what God gives us as His people. And we must not try to find hidden meanings in the Bible so that we can see how we can fulfill all of our various curiosities. In your use of your brain that God has given you, as you explore God's reality, as you explore reality through God's lens, as you explore existence through God's word, you must have a category in your mind that certain things are not revealed to you, therefore they are not yours, therefore trying to find them out is a colossal, epic waste of resources and energy. Let me encourage you to memorize and meditate on Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe the words of this law. That's our life. That's where we live. We live on the revealed things. You try, stop spending time trying to find all the hidden stuff and what's this and what does this mean and by doing all of that, you're leaving normal righteousness, normal what you're called to, undone. 
You could, be, you could be growing in your sanctification. You could be growing in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could be loving other people. You could be sacrificing for other people. But here you are. You spend an hour trying to find out if the mark of the beast is in the vaccine. Let me encourage you, dear saints. Let me encourage you. Let's not waste time on things that are just unnecessary. We have a task to do. The disciples had a task to do. And sometimes, and I have to hit on this one because you see, it's Bible study. Yeah? It's scriptural stuff. Sanctified. Yeah, you're expecting me to say, don't go out clubbing and all of that, but I know you. Your temptation is not there generally. Maybe some of you do. And let me encourage you, don't go out clubbing. But by and large, just generally Christians, generally, we, 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 the, t- the place where we waste time is with God's Word. Trying to find out things that were not revealed to us. Our task is very clear. It's not complicated. Christianity is, is hardly complicated. It's very simple. We, live, we love God and love our neighbor. That's it. There's no hidden things trying to run away from the jab because I'm now going to be marked or trying to run away from this or trying to, trying to figure out who's the Antichrist here. Is, is this now world leader now, the Antichrist? I mean, 10 years ago there was an Antichrist and then now there's a new Antichrist. There's going to be another Antichrist next year. You, you, you're busy chasing the wind. Because it, and it all sounds Christian. It sounds like you're being discerning. You're wasting time. You're wasting time. Dear saints, let me encourage us. Let me encourage us as God's people to focus our energy where it should be on what God has revealed to us to do. Are you with me? Let's, let, 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 let's, let's, let's hold each other accountable to just focus on what we are required to do and not spend hours on end trying to figure out what the signs of the times are. The Lord Jesus Christ here, um, actually, i written down here, and uh, I was going to skip it, but let me just read it because it might be useful for some of you. Stay away from those TBN programs where they spend hours on end trying to calculate when Jesus is coming back based on the fact that Israel went back to their land in 1948. Okay, there's lots of that going on. Please stay away from that. That's, those programs that run for hours on end, stay away from them. They are not going to benefit you in any way. Not going to draw you towards righteousness in any way. Focus on what God has given you. We see here, the Lord Jesus redirects their attention to where it should be. He says, but you will receive power, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Note that in verse 5, the Lord Jesus made it very clear to them that the the baptism of the Spirit is imminent. And as I've said, that meant that they are now about to be commissioned with the task that they are to do. And now he spells out the task in very clear terms. But the first thing he says is that you will receive power. says to them, they will receive power. In other words... They are without the power that they need without the Holy Spirit. The task that's in front of them requires the power of the Holy Spirit to do. They are without the resources that they need 
without the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit arrives, the church will then be able to perform the necessary tasks of their commission. Now, we will see when the Holy Spirit arrives. We'll spend time on that and what all of that meant when He arrives in Acts chapter 2. Um, but for now, let's just focus our eyes and our attention on the task that they will perform. They will be witnesses of Christ from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. What does it mean to be a witness of Christ? What does it mean to be a witness here? How exactly are they to fulfill their task? What is their task and mission? Well, for them, it would mean one clear thing. To be witnesses, that is, to be those who report accurately what they have seen. To be those who report accurately, truthfully, what they have seen. The disciples, especially the eleven, were to be witnesses of Christ. They were to report to the world about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Consider for a moment with me the end of Luke chapter 24 verse 46. Won't you come there with me for a second? I want to add more color to this. Add more color to this. We'll start from verse 46. This is after the Lord Jesus has, has rebuked them for not understanding the Scriptures, not seeing that the Son of God had first had to die and then had to rise again. And then He opens their minds, in verse 45, He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. And then He explains this. He says this in verse 46. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the, third, from the dead on the third day, and, the, and that repentance of forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Here are the things that they are to report. Let's just categorize them. Number one, they are to report, not only in Jerusalem, but to the end of the world, that Jesus Christ was truly a man among them who lived. They are to, they are to report that He truly taught what He taught them about the kingdom of God. They are to report that he truly was killed and they saw it and many other witnesses saw it as well. And they are to report that they saw him for 40 days after he had risen from the dead, alive, not as a ghost, but with a true body alive. And they are to go out then, based on that reality, they are to go out and proclaim forgiveness of sins as available to all nations of the world exclusively based on these facts. Based on these facts that have happened among them, they saw them, the disciples, they saw these things, they tasted them, they felt them. In fact, when you read 1 John, the introduction of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, from verse 1 up to like verse 3, he says, he says, what we have seen, what we have touched and handled with our own hands, we proclaim to you. That's what they were to do. They were to tell, tell the world of what they saw. And the Lord makes it clear, lest their love for Israel confines them, 
uh, that their mission begins in Jerusalem, but it doesn't end there. It goes to the world. They are not only to witness about this in Israel, like they were to do so during his earthly ministry, but now their commission is to the ends of the earth. Now, I want you to pay attention here both to verse 8, well, specifically in verse 8. Pay attention and, and, and answer this question. Do you see a command there? Read verse 8 again of our text in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Do you see a command there? No, you don't. No, you don't. Both of these things, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the reality that the church is going to be witnesses of Christ through the ends of the earth, are written down as statements of fact. This is what is going to happen. They come to him, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to, restore the kingdom to Israel? It has nothing to do with you, the times or seasons. Don't be, don't be fixated on times or seasons. But let me tell you what is going, about to happen. You guys are going to go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you. And you're going to take this message about me towards the ends of the earth. What this says to us is that there's, there's, there's no conditional statement here. Okay? He doesn't say that if that you receive the Spirit and you might, do, you might receive the Spirit. It might come upon you, perhaps, if you're obedient enough. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say... Well, if, you, if you're really good Christians, you'll end up witnessing about me. He doesn't say that either. He says it as a statement of fact. Let me tell you what's going to happen. My message through you is going to go out into the world. Here are a few observations from this commissioning. First, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is in a real way entrusted to the church to take to the world. No other organization has the work that the church has been given. Jesus did not promise any other organization the power of the Holy Spirit, nor did he entrust the message regarding his life to anyone else. Like Peter says in Acts chapter 3, as the church of Jesus Christ, we don't have much. All we have is the gospel to bring to the world. And therefore, what we have we give to the world. If the work is not done by the church, it remains undone. If the church is not done, if the church doesn't stand up and take up the task that is given to her, the resources that have already been given to her for the task, if she just takes those resources and just gets comfortable, the work remains undone. No one else is going to do it. That we will see later in Acts, in fact, that the church, this, 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 new, this new one, this virgin church here, gets very comfortable in Jerusalem. And the Lord brings persecution so that they will get on with it. Second, you might be wondering, what does it mean for you and me to be witnesses? This is another important thing. Because this is talking to them, right? He's talking to those who saw him. If you're in here this morning, you didn't see Jesus Christ, have you? You didn't see him rise from the dead. You didn't hear him teach you directly. So then what does it mean for you and me? What does it mean for us as a church? How do we then continue the task that that, new, that church started? What does, that, what does that look like for us since we are not witnesses in the way that they were? Well, our witness is twofold. 
First, our witness is found in reiterating their witness. Our witness is found in rehashing, relaying, not getting bored with their witness. We say what they said. We are not apostles. Let me tell you for free. Okay? I'm sorry if you had designs for yourself. You're not an apostle. Okay? We're not apostles because we, we were not there during... We do not have that, that initial walking with Christ. That, that was for them. So, then, so therefore, we do not have the same authority that they do. We don't have the, the freedom to come up with new stuff. Our message is their message. There's no need for us to try to reinvent the wheel. Yeah? There's, our message is a very simple one. It's the it's same message that they have been preaching. We do not change it to make it relevant for the times. We do not change it based on who we're speaking to. We do not manu- perhaps add certain things to it in order to make sure that this message makes more sense with all the scientific knowledge that we have now. No. Our task is to relay the very same witness that they have relayed. Our witness is found in relaying, in reiterating their witness. And the authority remains where it should be with them. The disciples saw this. That's why the scriptures, we preach them as God's word, right? That's why we don't come with our own testimonies and say, look at me. This is, this is me now. And this is what I have heard from Jesus. I, I believe, I sincerely believe, I believe this in my heart, that one of the reasons that Pentecostalism has such a great hold on people and such a great uh, 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 likability is because here's a man in front of you who comes in front of you and says this, I've seen a vision, God has given me a vision for this city that this was what must happen. And so then it's much easier to follow a guy who is close to God, Right? It's much easier to follow a guy who has a a direct line to God that you and I don't have. But the reality is that we we don't need any of that. The Bible is enough. Their witness is enough. The Lord has, has, has preserved what they said. What they saw, what they said, the Lord has preserved that. And that is enough. We take that and we give it to the world. But there is a second side to our testimony. Once you and I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we also share that with the world. Once the Lord Jesus has changed our lives through their testimony, once we now know no guilt for sin, it's something powerful when you read in the Revelation that it, the, the book of, in the book of Revelation that the, that the disciples... Uh, that the church overcome the evil one by the word of their testimony. That is to say, the gospel of Jesus Christ has arrived to me. It's changed me. I once was this way. Now I'm this way. The gospel of Jesus Christ has worked on me. I once had no life. Now I, had li- now I have life. I had sins. I had so much sin in front... Before God, I was living in guilt and now I am free. Why? Because Jesus Christ has died. How do I know Christ has died? Because His Word tells me so. There is something powerful when we say we ourselves are changed. And people can actually see that change. 
Our, our witness is our, even in one sense, it's when we ourselves have changed and, and, our, and our lives have changed from being rebellious. Uh, you know, we, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, being rebellious, living lives of, lives of licentiousness, religiosity, legal, legalism, all of these things. And now you move to a life of grace because you truly have taken into heart that Jesus Christ has died and rose again. That is a testimony that we are also to share with others. Hey, listen, man. Listen. What I'm, what, what I'm telling, what these guys are speaking about in this book, it's not, it's not some kind of, you know, Fong Kong. This is the real stuff. See, God asked, uh, God asked Israel in uh, Isaiah 43 to be his witnesses. He, he stands there and he says, okay, all of these idols of the world, let's see who their witnesses are. Let's hear the people whose lives have been changed by them. Let's see all the people who have had their life come to them because of these idols. Let's see them. And then he turns to Israel and says, Israel, you are to be my witnesses. You are to testify. These, these guys, these idols have no witnesses, but you are to testify to me, to the life that you have received from me. That is how we witness. We witness by relaying apostolic doctrine exactly as it is. That the Lord Jesus Christ died and that forgiveness of sins is freely available to everyone. And we also witness by saying we ourselves have been changed. We ourselves have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Well, let's come quickly to the end of the story now. Verse 9. And we'll quickly see... The end of the story. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. After Jesus makes clear their mission, he ascends to heaven. Jesus clearly will not be here physically with them as they execute their mission. But rather, like He had promised them, the Spirit is going to be the one who is going to be with them as they complete the mission. And then He is taken up in a cloud in front of them and He disappears. And they stand there transfixed as He ascends. And it seems as if that they stand there and overstay their welcome. They're standing there and lingering a bit too much. Now, consider the reality with me, dear friends, that this is quite a sight. Okay? You have to think, Jesus had performed many miracles while he was alive with them. But one thing he had never done before is fly. <laughs> and here he is in front of them now flying and ascending into heaven. And not just that, consider also that there's a cloud that envelops him as he goes. And if you're a Hebrew... That reminds you of the cloud that brought the Israelites and kept them in the wilderness. The cloud that was above the, the it's called the Shekinah glory, the, the glory of God that was above the tabernacle even and the, te, the, the, the temple of, of Solomon. And they're seeing this and they're seeing us, this is, this is truly God. This is truly Yahweh who has been in our midst and they're, they're gripped and they stand there Watching, And these two angels appear and they lightly rebuke them for standing there transfixed. They say to them, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you standing here watching him go? Many commentators offer different reasons for why the angels are rebuking them. Because in my mind, I've also been struggling. Why would you rebuke people for watching a wonderful sight? Um, and so there's, there's a number of different reasons why, why the angels rebuke them. It is possible that the disciples were expecting something to happen to them as well. Right? So, okay, he just flew. Okay, let's get ready. Uh, perhaps they were expecting to follow him, right? You can conceive that that's possible. Perhaps they were just twiddling their thumbs there, expecting Jesus to come back immediately. And this is not really far-fetched. Because after Elijah was taken up by a chariot, we are told in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 16, that the company of prophets expected him to be returned immediately. So perhaps they're imagining that Jesus has gone up, but uh, maybe this is just some kind of, you know, maybe it's like, this is a transfiguration kind of thing again. He's going to come back down with us, to us. And they might be expecting something else to happen. Whatever it is, whatever the distraction is, It's clear that they are distracted. And the angels ask them, why are you standing here looking into heaven? Don't worry about this. He will come back the way he left. In other words, this is what the angels are saying. Get to it. Get to the work. Go back to to Jerusalem. Leave the Mount of Olives. Leave the mountain. Go to Jerusalem and wait for what He has told you. Return to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Stop gazing at the stars. Get to the work. According to a Harvard study done in 2010, the average person is distracted 47% of the time. The average person is distracted 47% of the time. And there are a number of different distractions. There are good things that distract us from what we should be doing. If you give a person a task, there are are a number of things that are going to distract him from what he is doing. Sometimes there are good things. Good things to ponder on, but they are in place of a task that needs to be done. So they they constitute a distraction. Sometimes there are bad things. Dilly-dallying, laziness. That is in place of a task that needs to be done right now. Many times we find ourselves focused on things that we should not be focused on at the moment. And the disciples here are rebuked for that reason. We have a number of temptations for us as a church that will distract us. We won't see Jesus going up, but there are a number of other things that could distract us. We could be distracted by desire for miracles. Yeah? We could be distracted by a desire for shiny things. For more power. For seeing powerful things happen. And that distracts us from the mission. We could be distracted by a number of different programs. We, we implement a program. And to us that program becomes everything. And as you're busy on your way to implement the program in the church or whatever it is. You leave an important task undone. We could be distracted by many projects. By many considerations. There is a number of things that could grab our attention as a church and remove us from the task that's in front of us. We must be about our business. And our business is to make disciples. Jesus, we must have a contract amongst ourselves here 
that the preaching about Jesus Christ to those who do not know Him is the main work and priority for us as a church. Hear me clearly. I'm going to say this. It's going to shock you a little bit, but just, but just wait. Just wait, okay? Don't, don't run away. Just listen to me. We're not here to fix society. Okay? It is true that some of us here might be called to that work individually and some of you here in groups might be called to that work to fix society in different ways to 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 do particular projects that help the society and you should do that that's great but as a church as an organization we have a clear mission and that mission is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know are you with me don't, I'm not speaking against doing good things for the society, doing good things to fix society, to uplift our fellow man. We should do those things. We are called to do those things. But as a church, we must know that our primary priority is the gospel of Jesus Christ going into the nations. That's what we've been clearly given resources for. That's what we've been taught how to do. We've been told how to do it. We've been given a plan of how to do it. Everything is baked into the cake for us that we are to do this task. So let us not be distracted by good things from our task as a church. And by God's grace, we will do it. As you saw there, it is a promise. This is what will happen. The disciples did their task. They, they went kicking and screaming, some of them. But they did their task. The gospel has arrived to us. They wrote down the gospel and the Lord has preserved it. It's arrived to you and me. So may we also be, may we also have that same hope that if we're faithful, if we just follow the Lord Jesus Christ in his word, we ourselves can do the same mission and fulfill the task. Amen. Let's pray.